This morning's message <clears throat> comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> and the title for the message this morning in our series, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, Part for each for the other. From 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. And I know that some were hoping to hear about the head coverings this morning. We will get to that next week. One more week. And we will deal with that um, curious topic. This morning we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. <clears throat> Join me in prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we... Uh, We pray once again, Lord, that as we continue to walk through this, uh, this so important passage um, on understanding the relationship between men and women, husbands and wives, as we uh, particularly in this day and age where there is so much gender confusion, Lord God, not only in the world, but... Uh, as the world influence continues to creep inside the church, it is becoming more and more difficult for the church, for Christian families, for Christian marriages to, uh, to remain focused, to remain true to our respective uh, roles and responsibilities within the family as the world seeks to pull us in, in different directions. As the world <clears throat> continues to repeat uh, the words of that, uh, that old deceiver, the serpent, uh, has God really said? Has God really said that these are your roles and responsibilities? And, and it can be so easy to, uh, to give a listening ear to the serpent who speaks through the world. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. And we pray for everyone in this room that you would give us the strength and the courage to stand against the world, to stand on your word, regardless of what the world may think, regardless of what others may say. We pray that you would help us. Uh, to be true to your, to be true to your word, to be true to what you have uh, commanded us to do, what you have instructed us to do, Lord, to be faithful to your word, and we pray this in Christ's name, Amen. <clears throat> uh, many of you have heard the name uh, William Carey. If you're familiar with uh, church history, if you're familiar with. Uh, uh, the work of missions in church history. Uh, William Carey is considered to be the father of modern missions. He is the father of the modern missionary movement. And this is because uh, William Carey uh, landed, first landed in India in the year uh, 1793. And uh, in the year 1800, seven years later, he established the first modern Protestant mission in the non-English speaking world. And that's why he is considered to be the father of modern missions because he established the very first modern Protestant mission in a non-English speaking world. And he established that mission near Calcutta on January 10th of the year 1800. And uh, William Carey, uh, to his credit and to the, um, the, the amazement of uh, many, many people, 
labored in India for 40 years without ever taking one furlough. Never took a break, never went back to England for rest and relaxation. 40 years he labored. And he labored for 40 years without furlough, not just to spread the gospel. He went there certainly primarily to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he also translated the Bible into 40 languages in India. If you're familiar with India and their culture, there's not one set language. There are multiple dialects in India. And so he wanted them to have the, uh, the Bible in their own language. Many of these languages that were spoken in India uh, uh, in the um, early 19th century uh, did not even have a written language. William Carey had an amazing mind. Uh, he learned many of these languages and created a language for them and then translated the Bible into 40 different languages so that the Bible could be read in their own tongue. He also helped to establish schools because like many of the reformers, uh, the reformers used to, they valued education uh, because they would always say that the chief end of all education is to know God. And I agree with them. The more we learn about the world Uh, that we live in the world that God created, the universe that God created, the more we learn about the Creator Himself. And so William Carey as well, uh, standing in that tradition, helped to establish schools, he helped to establish hospitals, and he helped to establish many libraries as well. At the time, India was described as, quote, an uncultivated jungle abandoned to wild beasts and serpents. It was an untamed part of the world where Bengal tigers still roamed uh, freely. It was a a dangerous place uh, to live. And thus, before leaving for India, uh, William Carey was attending a a missions meeting as they were discussing uh, sending someone to uh, India. And he was attending this meeting with a very close friend of his by the name of Andrew Fuller. Many of you are familiar with that name if you've read the story of William Carey. And in that meeting, Andrew Fuller said this, quote, There is a great need in India, but it seems almost as deep as the center of the earth. Who will venture to explore it? Close quote. Who's going to go there for us? William Carey replied with his now famous response, He said, quote, I will venture to go down, but remember that you must hold the ropes, close quote. Most remember William Carey. Most people are familiar with his name. But very few remember that Andrew Fuller indeed held the ropes for William Carey. It was Andrew Fuller who was uh, primarily responsible for organizing the mission work that would support William Carey during those 40 years of missionary work. It was Andrew Fuller who put forth uh, much of the effort to raise and secure funding in order to keep uh, William Carey's work going and to produce all of these Bible translations and to establish all of these schools in hospitals and libraries. At the end of the day, we understand that William Carey could not have accomplished all that he had accomplished had men like Andrew Fuller and others not held the ropes for him. In a sense, this is what Paul is going to talk about this morning in these new these two verses we're going to be looking at Paul is going to touch on this very idea the idea that William Carey was as dependent on Andrew Fuller as Andrew Fuller was on as dependent on William Carey they were dependent on one another to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ to advance the kingdom of God in India. And so Paul in verses 11 and 12 he's going to clarify uh, something that he has uh, he's been talking about for a while because uh, Paul um, in verses 5 to 10 you know Paul has been talking a lot in those verses verses 5 to 10 he's been discussing a lot 
about the fact that women are under the authority of men, that men are the ones who are in the position of authority over, uh, over women. And uh, he understands that uh, people could easily get the wrong impression. People could easily come away with the impression that men are superior to women and that women contribute very little to the advancing of the gospel or to the advancing of God's kingdom. Because, if you remember, just to review, back in verse 5, Paul says that if a woman prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head, which would be her husband or her father if she is uh, single, because in biblical times a single woman would very likely uh, be living still with uh, her father. If she was a widow, then she very likely would be living with uh, the family of her oldest son, who would still be functioning as the head of the family uh, in that situation. He goes on to say in verse 7 that woman is the glory of man. And then he says in verse 8 that the woman came from man and not man from the woman. And then he'll say in verse 9 that the woman was made for man and the man was not made for the woman. So had Paul stopped there, Paul understands, being the good writer that he is, he realizes how his words could be misunderstood. And so he's careful about that, and he comes back and he offers two qualifying statements in verses 11 and 12. And so he says, Nevertheless, despite the fact that woman was made for man, despite the fact that the woman came from the man and the man didn't come from the woman, despite the fact that uh, the woman is under the authority of her husband or of her father, he says, nevertheless, let me pause and be clear here for a moment, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. In other words, Paul wants to be clear that men and women are dependent on each other. Men and women are dependent on each other. One cannot say to the other, I absolutely do not need you. Because that's not true. Paul makes clear that we need one another. We are, men and women are dependent on one another. He'll use similar language when talking about the church as the body of Christ and that we are all members of one body. As we get into chapter 12, he'll say this in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. In other words, simply because the various parts of the body look different, because the eyes don't look like the hands, the hands don't look like the feet, just because the various parts of the body look different and they function differently does not mean that we don't need the various parts of the body. Right? The eyes cannot say to the hands, look, I don't really need you. I function just fine on my own. I don't need hands to do what I do. Well, it may be true that eyes don't need hands in order to see. The eyes don't need the hands in order to do what they do. But eyes without hands make it very difficult to pick up things that the eyes see. I see that. I want to pick it up. But without hands, you can't do that. So the eyes are dependent on the hands to some extent. The head without feet... The head can't say to the feet, can't say to the feet, I don't need you. I function just fine without you. Well, it may be true that your head, your brain functions just fine without feet, but head without feet makes it nearly impossible for the head to want to go where the head wants to go, right? The head can't get to where it wants to go without feet. So they are dependent on one another. And thus, Paul reminds the church in Corinth of this simple fact. 
that while it is true that woman was formed from the man, therefore every man, but thereafter every man comes from the woman. So in one sense, women would not exist, cannot exist, without men, without the man. But in another sense, Paul is making it clear that all men cannot exist without women. We owe our existence to each other. We owe our existence to one another. And not just our existence, but in most cases, every man, in most cases, most men, even today, although probably less often, most men are raised and nurtured by women. Most men, particularly if you grew up in a, uh, a home with a stay-at-home mom, became the men that they are because of a woman. Um, my wife recently is reading a book, another book on uh, biblical motherhood, and uh, she shares with me what she's reading. And one of the things that she said she found very convicting about this book that she is reading is that the book uh, reminds, reminds her that she, particularly as a stay-at-home mom, will be one of the single greatest influences in her children's life, in her son's life. Largely, how he grows up and what he becomes will be significantly shaped and molded by a woman who will speak into his life and nurture him and shape him and help him to become the man that God desires for him to be. And this is not just a, um, a new idea. This is not just trying to find value in what women do. Uh, for example, there is a statement in the book of First Ezra uh, chapter 4, and you're wondering, where is that? Well, it's, a, it's an apocryphal book, so I'm not quoting this as authority. This is not the Word of God that I'm citing. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it is interesting that going back more than 2,000 years, right? this is a statement from more than 2,000 years ago, uh, there is a statement in First Ezra chapter 4, which I found interesting, where it says this, Is not the king great, and are not men many, and is not wine strong? Is not the king great? Goes on to say, Who is it then that rules them or has mastery over them? Is it not women? Women gave birth to the king and to every people that rules over sea and land. From women they came. Women make men's clothing. They bring men glory. Men cannot exist without women. Close quote. Who makes the king great? Who shaped the king's character? Who instructed him? Who molded him? Who brought the king into this world? Women. Again, Paul will use similar language. The point that he is driving home here in our text of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, is that although men are placed into the position of authority, they ought not to be arrogant over women, over their wives. Paul will use similar uh, language. In Romans chapter 11, when uh, discussing how it is that uh, unbelieving Jews are broken off from the uh, covenant community of God and, and unbelieving Gentiles who place faith in Christ are then grafted in to the covenant community of Israel. And he says in Romans chapter 11, verses 17 and 18, listen to this. He says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree... Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So Paul says if unbelieving Jews are broken off 
And you, a wild olive branch, are grafted in by faith. He says, do not be arrogant over and against Jews. You know, and we still need to be careful about that. That we, we, that we don't act arrogantly, boastfully, over against the Jewish nation, Jews that do not believe in the Messiah. Because it was from them that came the Messiah. From them comes the covenants. From them comes the promises. From them comes the Old Testament and, to a large extent, the New Testament. Written primarily by Jews. Believing Jews. So we ought to be careful that we are not arrogant over against them. That is Paul's point that he wants us to understand in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Men ought not to be arrogant or boastful over against women, over against their wives, because we are dependent on each other. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman. In other words, men and women are dependent on each other for our existence. However, Scripture makes clear that we are dependent on each other in more ways than one. We are dependent on each other in more ways than one. Not just for our existence, but even for how we function in this world, within the family, within the church, within society. Beginning with creation which is what Paul has been referencing all along, right? Multiple references to creation. Paul keeps hearkening back to creation. Beginning with creation, we see that man was given the responsibility to work and to keep all that is in the garden. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2 because I think this is important to look at. It is a verse, in fact, verses 15 to 17 are three verses that are too easily and too quickly overlooked by the church today. In Genesis 2.15, we read, And the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The word work is the Hebrew word abad. And it literally means to nurture or to cultivate. The man was put in the garden. The woman has not been created yet. The man has been put in the garden and given the responsibility to nurture and to cultivate everything within the garden. To nurture and cultivate it in such a way that it flourishes, that it blossoms, that it does well, that it grows to be healthy and strong. To work and to keep it. The Hebrew word there is the word shamar. And it literally means to protect or to guard to keep it, to guard it, to protect it, to keep it safe. He was supposed to keep it safe from the serpent as well. But it's important to note that it is the man that is given these responsibilities because the woman does not even exist yet. Then we go on to read in verses 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Notice, And the Lord God commanded the man, not the man and the woman, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
Notice again that the Lord commanded the man. These instructions, these responsibilities were given to the man alone because at this moment the man is alone. There is a reason God doesn't create Adam and then Eve and then give these instructions. Because had he done that, then we would have a biblical argument that there is a co-equal partnership between the man and the woman. That there is a joint responsibility in doing these things if he gave these instructions to both. You've all have heard the phrase, with knowledge comes power, right? God gives these instructions to Adam. Gives these responsibilities to him. When Eve is created, she is then dependent upon the man for guidance, for instruction. What did the Creator tell us to do? What is our role? What is my role? And it was upon Adam to teach her what God has said. It's important to note that these responsibilities are, that are given to the man are, number one, pre-fall. The fact that the man is placed in the position of leadership and the position of authority is not because of sin entering into the world. This is part of the created order. This is the way God designed it. What sin brings into the world is that it makes that relationship conflict. Where the woman will no longer willingly desire to submit to his leadership. And man will be more than willing to abdicate his role of responsibility. This is pre-fall. Number two, it is applied to everything within the garden, within, within the sphere of man's responsibility. When God commands Adam to work and to, to work, to nurture, to cultivate, and to keep and to protect everything within the garden. And then suddenly the woman is brought into the garden. Adam would have immediately understood what that meant. She is now a part of the garden. And I've been given the responsibility to cultivate and to nurture and to protect everything within the garden. That is what my Creator has given for me to do. That applies to her. It's important to note that these instructions are specific to the man, as I've already pointed out. And that these instructions are repeated and they are fleshed out throughout the rest of Scripture. Because understandably, we're not really given a glimpse of what that looked like within the garden before the fall. How, how, did, how did this relationship, how did they work out their roles and responsibility within the garden before the fall? We don't know. We don't know how long Adam and Eve lasted before they fell. Was it a day? Two days? A week? No idea. But we do know that as we make our way through the Bible, particularly as we get through the new, get to the New Testament, in the Old Testament what we are given are copious examples of this being lived out. We're given copious examples and we ought not to neglect those examples either. God speaks to Abraham, for example, and says, Pack up, you're moving to a land that I will show you. Abraham says to Sarah, God says we're moving. And Sarah says, okay, you lead, I'll follow. Don't overlook those examples that we find in Scripture. We're given examples in the Bible, but then we're given clear instructions as we come to the New Testament that men are still responsible for nurturing and cultivating their wives with the Word of God. For example, Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 25, Scripture says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So in other words, the model that men are given, that husbands are given, 
is to look at how Christ loves the church. Look at what Christ does for the church. Look at the way in which Christ demonstrates His love for the church. And that is how husbands are to relate to their wives. How? That He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. With the Word of God, so that He might present the church to Himself without... uh, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, Paul says, this is what Christ does to the church. He nourishes the church with the Word of God. He washes her with the Word of God so that the church may grow and become holy and godly and sanctified and that at the end of, at the, end of the time, the church may be presented to himself spotless and without wrinkle. And Paul says, this is what husbands are to be striving to do with their wives. It's interesting to note that this kind of language is never used in the Bible regarding women toward their husbands. You never see that. Where where women are encouraged or commanded... To wash your husbands with the Word of God. To teach them the Word of God. You don't see that. Why? Because it was not given as a responsibility for the woman to do that for the man. That responsibility is given to the man to do that for the woman. This responsibility applies not just to a man's wife, but also to his family. We see in that same book, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Scripture says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice, it does not say fathers and mothers. It doesn't say parents. It says fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Because again, it is the responsibility that was given to the man to cultivate, to nurture, to instruct, to teach, to protect, to guard everything that was given within his domain, within his sphere of responsibility. That still applies today. When a man gets married, when he has children, that family falls within his sphere of responsibility, within his domain. And it is his responsibility to teach, to instruct, to nurture, to cultivate, and to protect the family from the things of the world that might harm them. Not just physically protect them from physical harm, but even more importantly, to spiritually protect them from spiritual or theological harm. That is primarily the responsibility of husbands and fathers. For this reason... Men ought to apply themselves to studying the Bible, to studying theology, to reading books on theology, because that is the man's responsibility, whether we like it or not, whether we want to accept it or not. Now, this does not mean that a man is sinning, So I want to clarify some of my own statements. This does not mean that a man is sinning if he is not more theologically inclined than his wife. Sometimes that's not always possible. You know, particularly in a situation where you have boy meets girl, girl grew up in a Christian home, in a Christian family all her life, going to church and meets a very godly man who's been a believer for a very short time. He may have a lot of catching up to do. So it may not always be the case that he is more theologically inclined than his wife. And it is not a sin 
for that to be. However, he is sinning. He is sinning. If he does not desire that. If he does not desire to be able to shepherd his wife spiritually and theologically. Or if he simply will not accept that as his responsibility. I've met men like that. You know, my wife does enough Bible studying and reading for the both of us. She's fine. It is a sin to abdicate our God-given responsibilities, our God-given duty. And every man ought to strive to be his wife's theological superior. He ought to strive to be the one who has the answers. And that takes work. It takes work. Reading takes work. This also does not mean that women may not study the Bible, that women may not study theology, or that women may not teach the Bible to other women. We don't see that in Scripture, right? The opposite of what Scripture commands is not always forbidden. Scripture commands that it is the man's responsibility to teach the Bible to his family, to his wife, that does not mean it is forbidden for the woman. But what needs to be clear, that the primary responsibility for teaching God's Word within the home and within the church lies with men. It lies with men. Now, I know that's not a popular statement in this day and age. This nurturing and protecting is not just spiritual, and theological, however. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, right at the beginning of that uh, chapter, and uh, really beginning in, uh, in verse 3, uh, Paul gives instructions to Timothy, who is the uh, pastor of the uh, first church of Ephesus. And he gives instructions to Timothy about how widows should be cared for. We see that primarily in verses 3 and 4. Honor widows who are truly widows. Right? This is what he's telling Timothy. Timothy, this is how widows are to be cared for. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. In other words, <coughs> a widow ought to be primarily cared for by her children. Or her grandchildren. If she has children or grandchildren, those are the ones who should primarily take care of her. And in the first century world, very often this would fall to the responsibility of the oldest son. She would move in with her oldest son, and he would be the head of the household, and he would take care of his mother, and he would take care of his own wife, and he would take care of his own children. But notice then, the importance that Paul places upon this in verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, to be clear, Paul does not say, right? Let's not read into what he's saying. Paul does not say, if anyone is not able... We know that it is not always possible for the man to be able to provide, to be the sole provider for the family. Sometimes people fall on hard times. Sometimes they live in a difficult economy. There are any numerous reasons why it may not be able for the man to be the provider for his family. So I want to be clear and qualify my own statements this does not mean that a man is sinning if he is unable to fully provide for his family. However, it is a sin. It is a sin if, number one, a man does not desire to do that. There isn't a desire to fulfill the biblical mandate. It is a sin if a man does not strive for that. Yes, I'm offered positions at work where I could move up and make more money, but I don't want to do that. I'm happy with where I am. My wife works and we're good, and I'm not going to worry about trying to provide for the family. 
It is a sin for a man not to desire that. It is a sin for a man to not strive for that. And it is certainly a sin for a man to simply not accept that as his responsibility. That is a biblical mandate. But also from the creation story, we see that the woman was created as his helper. Genesis chapter 2, again, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It is not good that the man should be alone. This does not mean that the man was incapable of caring for himself. That without Eve, he would have starved to death. Right? That is not what that means. Rather, when God says it is not good for the man to be alone, it is for two reasons. Number one, man being made in God's image is a relational creature because God is a relational being. God has never existed alone. God has always existed for all of eternity within the harmonious fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God Himself is a relational being. So when He creates Adam in His own image, He recognizes that He can't be alone. He needs a partner. He needs someone to relate to. And so, for that reason, it is not good that the man be alone. The second reason is that while men and women are both made in God's image, we are, men and women made in the image of God, they each possess different attributes, distinguishable by masculinity and femininity. Regardless of what the world says, men and women are different. They look different, they function differently, they are built differently, and listen, Intellectually and emotionally, they are wired differently. They think differently than men do. They respond to the world differently than men do. They are different. And these differences together, men and women, these differences together give us a fuller picture of the image of God of the attributes of God. In other words, when God said it's not good for the man to be alone because a world that is devoid of women would be a world that does not possess the fullest picture of its creator. In other words, God himself, we see from Scripture, is both wrathful and tender. God Himself, we see from Scripture, is both powerful and yet at the same time can be very gentle. Men and women together give us the fullest picture of our Creator. But we also see from Genesis 2.18 that she, would, she was made as a helper fit for Him. The Hebrew word there is negeb. It literally means the opposite of or corresponding to. So not identical. She was, the op- she was like a mirror image almost. Um, she corresponds to him in a sense. In other words, she was designed to complement him. Not to be equal to him with regards to authority or position, not as an equal partner, but she was created in a supporting role. She was created in a supporting role. Now what that looked like before the fall, as I said, is difficult to to ascertain, but the rest of Scripture makes this very clear. Paul, again, while writing to another pastor... Except this time he is writing to the pastor of the, uh, the first church of Crete, which would be Titus. Titus is the pastor in Crete. Paul plants a church there on the island of Crete, and he leaves Titus there to shepherd the church. And then he writes him this letter to give him instructions on how to run this church, how to organize this church. And he says in chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what is in align with biblical 
truth. And what is that? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and what is that exactly? They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to, number one, love their husbands and children. Number two, be self-controlled. Number three, be pure. Number four, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. This is what the women are primarily to be teaching the younger women. What the men are to be primarily teaching in their homes, in the church, is theology, is the Word of God. What the women should primarily be, though not exclusively, but what the women should primarily be teaching to the younger women is to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. This is why Paul uses this kind of language back in Ephesians, for example, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the one thing that Paul tells the wives they ought to be doing is submitting to the leadership and authority of their husbands. But then when he turns to the husbands in verse 25, it's very long and it's very detailed because there is far more that the men ought to be doing. That husbands and fathers ought to be doing. Women were created, woman was created in the support role for the man. To do that, she must be submissive to his authority, to his directions. But the man was created in the position of being the one who cultivates, nurtures, teaches, instructs, and protects the woman. Now again, I want to be clear. This does not mean that women may not hold a job outside the home. You cannot make that argument from Scripture. It is not a sin for a woman to work out, it can be in certain situations, in certain scenarios, it can be, but it is not by default a sin for a woman to work outside the home. It does mean that providing for the home is primarily the responsibility of the man. And if he can do that, he should. If he struggles with that, she's there to be a helper. But it should be his goal, his desire to be able to fully fulfill the biblical mandate that is given to all men. It is something that men should strive for. It is something that men should pray for. It is something that men should work for. Yes, it requires work. Some men may have to get a second job. And I know that that's not easy. But I'll submit to you that it's probably easier than having to submit to you who is not perfect, who is sinful, who doesn't always treat the wife perfectly. In the end, in the end, husbands and wives are not independent of each other, but in fact are dependent on each other. Dependent on each other for our existence, obviously. One cannot exist without the other. Women cannot exist without man. Man cannot exist without women. We are dependent on each other, yes, for our existence, but we are also dependent on one another to contribute and to fulfill our God-given roles and responsibilities.
And thus, as Paul says at the end of chapter 11, verse 12, all things are from God. Did you catch that little wording at the end? Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. All things are from God, and to God, and for God. Very similar wording that Paul uses at the end of Romans chapter 11. In other words, this is Paul's way of saying, this is how God designed it. This is how God intended it. All things are from God. In the end, God created man and woman, each for the other. Each for the other. We each serve each other in our own respective, unique roles and responsibilities. We each have something to contribute to the family, to the marriage, to the church, to society. And it is imperative that we know what it is that God expects of each of us. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we, uh, as we reflect upon our roles and responsibilities as men and women, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, um, Lord, we pray that you would help us to recognize that you know what is best. It is you who designed uh, men and women. It is you who designed marriage. It is you who designed the family. It is you who instituted the church. And it is you in all of your divine wisdom that laid out for us in Scripture our respective roles and responsibilities within the home, within the church, within society. And Father, I pray uh, for... Everyone in this room, Lord, everyone listening to this message, Father, I pray that you would uh, help us to embrace our own respective role and responsibility that you have have given to us. Help us to embrace it, to accept it, and to desire to fulfill it to the greatest extent possible that you might be glorified and glorified pleased with all that we do, Lord God. In the end, the believer's greatest desire ought to be to live for the glory of God, and we know that that means striving to live out what God has commanded in all of Scripture, though difficult as that may be. Father, we pray that you would give us the strength, that you would give us the desire, that you would give us the the willingness, Lord, to fulfill what you have given us to do. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.